Hello there. Hello, Winnie. Is that you? Azariah, <laughs> it's good to see you. Look at those glasses and that brick wall behind you. Hey, yes, I am in a different location today. I'm in um, uh, Ascension Church Hume in Manchester. Manchester. So, uh, yes. Are you all open and running? Is that, is that right? We're, uh, we're all open, we're all running, and um, I just had to receive 30 chairs for our Lady Chapel. And so I've just been heaving and hoeing. And so, um, you know, if you see a bit of a sheen, it's not the glory of God, it's sweat and perspiration. Um, and but apparently you, it's, it's warm there where you are, huh? It was incredibly hot the other day and another day before that. But right now it's raining and it's cool. It's like, it's what we used to, uh, the rain and the cool. But you're glowing, um, Winnie, um, but I'm sure it's glory, the, the glory of Atlantan sun. And, and the glory of God, and yes, yes. the southern sun, yes. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm just going to say, in, in the United States of America, it is unusual to have a lady chapel in sort of an evangelical church. So I, I just think that that's really interesting. Like, we don't have anything like that. Well, I guess I wouldn't call us an evangelical church, although I used to be an evangelical minister. So, yes. Haha, <laughs> things intriguing. This brings us to our friend Jeff Chu. Yeah. Tell me a bit about him, Winnie. I'd love to hear. He's an amazing person. I first came across him at a Why Christian conference. Um, that was uh, Nadia Boltz-Weber and um, Rachel Held Evans curated this, this, these amazing events. Thousands of people would come, mostly from evangelical traditions, um, it kind of talking about why, why they remain Christian in light of what Christianity um, definitely looks like from the outside, right? And so um, what's interesting about that space is it was almost all women or people who identified as women, and then they invited Jeff Chu. Um, to come in as uh, as not a woman, and um, he is a beautiful thinker and a journalist, um, travel writer. Um, was at Princeton Seminary when I met him, and at the Farminary, which is what they called their farm at the seminary, um, and is in a, a long ordination process. But is really as well known here as a writer and podcaster. Um, just a one of my favorite people. I have a picture of him with my dogs that I'll share with you. Well, can we meet him? I think we can. We see Jeff Chu on the screen. It says Jeff Chu. Hello, hello. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Winnie. Hi, Rosie. Hi, Azariah. Jeff, so lovely to meet you. What an honor. So we've just been hearing a little bit about you from Winnie. But, you know, uh, for me, as I'm getting to know you for the first time and for our listeners, I'm curious, Jeff, about for you, what is the meaning of home? You know, it's sort of in the present day, but also I'm curious, if I were to meet you uh, when you were uh, younger than a 10, 11, 12, what would home life look like for you? So it's nice that you start with such an easy question, right? Nothing fraught or difficult at all. When I think back to my childhood, home was my grandmother's fried rice. Home was a freezer full of roast ducks and rice noodles that we shipped with us after we moved from California uh, to Miami, where my dad's job took us. Um, there wasn't great Chinese food in Miami. Apologies to the Chinese community in Miami, but it's true. And so we carried home with us in our luggage. We were the family who 
at the airport, as the bags came out on the conveyor belt, there would be three or four that were dripping with condensation from all the things that we had frozen for the six-hour plane ride. And that spoke to me uh, of home. And I think that was really something that uh, my grandparents and my parents, having immigrated from Hong Kong, they had to carry home with them in their luggage too. Uh, my grandmother, I remember, had her walk that she brought with her. Uh, my, both my grandparents had packed up stacks of these old Chinese English bilingual hymnals with these frayed orange covers that spoke to them of home and that was handed down to me as home. Um, the family Bibles, uh, these little reminders of what belonging meant. Uh, but Miami was a tough place for me. My sister and I were two of the only Chinese kids in a school that was predominantly white and Cuban. And we were seen as math geniuses, even though we weren't that good at math. It was just that everybody else was worse at it. Um, and we had to carve out our own sense of home, which I don't think we did particularly well. Right? Home is such a complicated concept, I think, for so many of us, especially those of us who grow up in a culture where most folks don't eat like we do and speak the same language as we do at home and um, who move through the world in totally different ways. I'll tell you a little story. I remember coming back from a friend's house and wondering why uh, my Friends' parents would always say things to them like, we just want you to be happy. And whatever you do in life, as long as you're happy, that's all that matters. And you can do anything that you set your heart to as long as you work hard. And I said to my mother, why don't you ever say those things to me? And she said, because it's not true. I was raised in a family of San Francisco 49ers fans. My dad was a huge American football fan. And my mother said, you can't be a wide receiver. You're not that fast. You can't be Jerry Rice. I don't care how hard you work. And I was pretty good for her to stop at that point. She had made her point, and, but she kept going. And she said, you can't be a supermodel. You're not that good looking. And it was her way of saying she was never going to lie to me. But she also added, yes, things are going to be a little bit harder for you sometimes. So home has really been a struggle. Uh, home has meant trying to carve out some space where I feel comfortable being a little bit uncomfortable. Home has meant coming to terms with a body that doesn't work the way I want it to sometimes. That's a recent realization of mine that especially for those of us who can't find a sense of home in, within four walls. Our bodies are our first homes that God gives us. And how do you make peace with that when the muscles and the organs don't quite work right? And yet I think our bodies, it's important for me that I came to the realization that our bodies are our first homes because our bodies, even when they don't work right, contain such signs of God's grace. And what I mean by that is, in the time that I've been talking with you, I haven't had to think about breathing or keeping my heart going or sending specific messages to my brain. Those to me are signs of God's grace that these things just happen. And I think I've 
begun to come to peace with the moments of home that I can find because I'm more attentive to those moments of grace in my first home. It's, thank you. It's, it's, it, the way you just, the way you talked about that, you know, I hadn't thought about the fact until now that how, how many of us, when we're answering that question, when Azariah asked that question, we're kind of talking about the fact that our sense of home is contested from the beginning. It's not right, right? People tell us it's not right. I remember that from coming to college here in Atlanta and someone noting, not in a hostile way, that my, my clothes smelled of Indian food, um, which I, I didn't know what they meant until I went back home after having been away for so long and realized our house smelled like Indian food. And it probably had my whole life. And that's what people were talking. I had no idea. Um, but it had been weirdly contested. But in the thing that was most defining for me, like you, right, the place of profound comfort is, was food for me. But to that point, Jeff, it's early in the morning. Have you eaten? Thank you for asking me the traditional Chinese question. I have eaten. And of course, I had rice because I could eat rice at every meal for the rest of my life. I had rice with eggs and tomatoes, which is uh, a Cantonese comfort food dish that really speaks to me of home. And that for me is also home, learning these old recipes that I grew up on that you don't find on most restaurant menus. So yes, I have eaten and it was a very good This breakfast. is where our cultures that are so completely different have a little bit in common because the second question would have been exactly what, what did you eat? It's a dangerous question because what if you give an answer that your parents aren't satisfied with, right? Because if I'd said potato chips and coffee, my mother would have said, no, you didn't really eat. That wasn't a and proper my mother breakfast. would say, shall I, shall, I, shall I send you something? Yes, yes. We're in the midst of a kitchen renovation that's just ending. And when my mother found out that we were subsisting with a microwave and a toaster, she immediately went online and shipped us an electric walk because she couldn't imagine that we were being properly fed without a walk. And where Jeff carries his mother with him is... One of my experiences of Jeff is sitting down at a table to have like, shockingly good food prepared effortlessly, elegantly presented for everybody in the house. Um, as a, a, I experience, I mean, I, I don't know how to d- describe how, how easily he seems to lay a table for people that would have happily eaten a bag of chips, um, which is the most we could have pulled off collectively, and he won't have it. Jeff, I'm curious, as well as um, food for the body, food for the soul, um, how um, did your faith journey begin and how did you begin to find satisfaction within faith as you grew? My grandfather was a Baptist preacher in Hong Kong and a Bible college professor. My uncle still is a Baptist minister in Hong Kong. And the expectation in our family was that every adult would become a deacon in the church if you weren't an ordained minister. My grandmother was a primary school Bible teacher. Uh, My great-grandfather was a missionary. So this was the legacy into which I was born. And it was a beautiful thing. I understood the expectations from early on, but it was also a painful thing as I grew into puberty and realized that I had secrets that would not allow me to be the son that they wanted and the grandson whom they had planned for. There was extra pressure on me because, yes, there's a bias in favor of male children in Chinese culture. And I was the only son of a son. 
So I was expected to carry on the family name. I was expected to procreate and make other Baptist deacons. That was the job. That was the assignment from the time I was little. I was expected to marry a nice Baptist Chinese girl. And so the plans have gone somewhat awry. Uh, I experienced, to make a very long story short, the classic dark night of the soul after I realized the evangelicalism that I had been brought up in um, did not make room for my sexuality. But it took years for me to come to terms with the fact that there would be room in my life for both honesty about my sexuality and some version of Christian faith. It took moving to England, where I lived for five years. It took returning to the U.S. after that time away, after growing up a little bit, for me to uh, come out. But then it took years more for me to walk back into a church and to begin to figure out how my relationship with God did not have to be defined by how my parents and my grandparents defined God and read scripture. And I think that's a process that's still continuing now. Thank you so much for, for sharing so openly there. I, I wonder if um, family and faith life, you realize couldn't really accommodate you in your totality and your wholeness. Um, how did you get into the right mindset to be able to accommodate faith and family? So it started with guilt, which I suppose is an odd place for a faith resurrection to begin. Um, I felt really guilty going to brunch, as New Yorkers do, on uh, Sunday mornings. And I would find myself really unable to choke down a mimosa at 11 a.m. because I felt like this is the hour when I'm supposed to be in church. That's how my grandparents and parents raised me. And I eventually stumbled into the back of a church that allowed me to escape before coffee hour because I'm a really shy introvert. And I basically sat behind a column in worship for months and months and months. My boyfriend at the time, who is now my husband, he grew up Catholic. And he would ask me about going to church and I would confess to him that I had escaped early before communion. And he said... So you didn't really go to church. <laughs> Have you eaten? And I Have said, you yeah. eaten? <laughs> I said, exactly. I sat through a whole service. I sang the hymns. I listened to the sermon and he said, but you skipped communion. So you didn't really you go didn't to church. You didn't eat. And it was guilt. It was guilt that kept me there. And the pastor, this lo lovely, straight, white, older man, has a practice in his preaching of ending every sermon, no matter what the scripture is, he finds a way to turn his sermon back to God's love. So Sunday after Sunday, I was listening to these very thoughtful, quite intellectual sermons. And every single Sunday, he ended up with a proclamation of God's love. And I think ultimately, that is what resuscitated my faith. I credit this strange little collection of Dutch Reformed folks in Brooklyn for drawing a Baptist kid back to faith. And that's one reason I'm Reformed now, because I don't think I would have ever chosen it. Uh, I don't think that my Baptist free will would ever have walked this body into a church again. 
I want to, I want to talk about the Reformed tradition. And um, this is a very personal question, so it's okay not to answer it if you don't want to. But I, I, as, as the Anglican Communion gets ready for Lambeth, right? And we're, we've just learned it's going to be about sexuality again. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I am intrigued that for someone who, you describe yourself as someone who was kind of obedient and re- really wanted to be good. Um, how, why do you think, or how do you describe the grace that caused you to stay true to your understanding of your sexuality as opposed to perform well enough to be um, okay for the community and community around you and for your family? It's an excellent question. I think part of what makes Reformed theology so compelling to me is the understanding of grace that drives gratitude. And when I look at how my parents and my grandparents have expressed their gratitude for the things that they've had in life. And we were a poor family. We come from poverty and hardship. And when I see the gratitude that they've expressed in response to the grace they've been given, it inspires me to come up with my own versions of gratitude for the grace that I've experienced. I think there has to be a harmony even in a collectivist culture like the Chinese one, right? Between honoring oneself and one's call, and I mean call in the broadest sense of the term. I mean the longings of your heart. I mean the ways in which God is nudging you towards your part in healing the world. There has to be a harmony, and Chinese people are really into harmony, between that personal vision and the collective good. And I know, even if my grandparents didn't always recognize it, uh, I never came out to them, but they knew something was going on. Even if my parents still can't recognize it, I know I'm a better son and grandson and friend and neighbor because I am honest about who I am and the totality of that. And I think I can be honest about who I am and the totality of that because of God's grace and because of God's love, and because of my gratitude for those things. Does that answer your question? It absolutely does. You know, as a, so from the traditions I come from, I think of the Reformed tradition as kind of austere, probably because of the images of those Dutch faces, right? They're all kind of austere, and judging, and demanding. And what I've learned from you, and a few others of our friends, um, is the centrality of grace. Grace is lavish. I think some of my reformed ancestors have got it a bit wrong because of the austerity. But I also understand the goodwill and the holy and sacred desire behind some of that austerity. They want to get it right because the magnitude of their gratitude is so great. They want to get it right to honor grace. And sometimes maybe loosening up a little bit, and this is a word I need to hear because I'm not the most loose of human beings, uh, sometimes loosening up a bit is the best way to respond to that grace. Uh, Sometimes a splash of color wouldn't hurt a church sanctuary. Sometimes letting the stained glass window be colored as opposed to clear might hint at some of the diversity of God's creation. 
So I think there are ways in which maybe some of my Reformed ancestors overcorrected, and that's why we have the stereotypes of Reformed theology and practice that we do now. Jeff, um, uh, knowing Winnie, I've heard something of the experience of being Indian within um, the church and something of that experience as someone who is African-Caribbean of descent, uh, there is the story of colonialism, there's a story of slavery. I'm curious about something that you've come to understand of the Chinese journey uh, of um, towards uh, Western churches and what's that, what, what is that like? Um, so for me, there is often an assumption, it's interesting you said that when you were at school, people thought you and your sister were mathematical geniuses um, because of the, the stereotypes and the caricatures. The stereotypes and caricatures assume that um, I'm lesser than. And so I'm curious when there are assumptions that you're um, sort of, you know, some sort of math genius and, and brilliant, um, uh, what are the negatives with, with those uh, with those assumptions, but I'm um, I'm curious about what what is some of the journey um, that the Chinese community has has had to encounter and be accepted and be able to influence and change something of the Western Church. So w- we in Hong Kong have had to deal with different layers of colonization, right? There was a political colonization because Hong Kong was a British colony for so many years, and now it's a, essentially a communist Chinese colony. So the colonial era has continued there with outsiders imposing values. And then for my family in particular, there's a spiritual colonization because we were converted by Baptist missionaries from the American South who brought with them their own cultural values. In 2017, when my last grandparent died, I went back to Hong Kong for my grandmother's funeral. And I realized the very real effects of that spiritual colonization because I watched my aunts and uncles wrestle with how to grieve, what was appropriate in a Christian funeral and what was not, what was okay to bring with us from our quote unquote heathen Chinese heritage and what had to be left behind because we are not allowed to grieve as good Christians as our our traditional Chinese Uh, religious neighbors did. Um, I mention all that because that gets erased in the US. I've come to a country where I was flattened into a Chinese American caricature. And I say I've come to this country even though I was born in the US because I do still feel a sense of alienation from this country. I, I do feel a sense of alienation when I think of the flag and the national anthem. And I think that too is a legacy of the layers of colonization that my family has experienced because I don't know where I belong. I think what we're seeing, at least among the Chinese American first and second generation Christians that I know, we're seeing a diversity of responses to this baggage that we carry. And I think what complicates things for me and for some of my friends is the value that Chinese folks put on not shaking things up, not causing trouble, not being loud. 
the need for harmony. And how do we contribute best to harmony? We contribute best to harmony sometimes, at least this is what we're told, by working hard, putting our heads down, and essentially blending into the wallpaper. So it's a real struggle. I don't feel like I have a great answer to your question because I don't feel we've figured it out. Wow. Gosh, thank you um, so much for for sharing. It's, uh, you know, in, in my, so in something of my story, um, my parents were a little older when I came along. And so they were of a generation that really uh, saw themselves as British citizens um, whilst they lived um, on an island of Nevis in the Caribbean. And so there was a, such a sense that... Um, that um, my mum would take pride in the fact that people called them um, the whites in their village because um, they seemed so English. And there was a thing of being part of the Anglican church and and that was the, the aspirational church. So if you were there, uh, you were pretty much an English person just with a great tan. <laughs> and so, you know, so there's, there's so much as you talk about the mixed messages, um, intergenerational in terms of trying to figure out who we are. So I grew up, my parents um, just saying everything was wonderful. My mum used to sing um, a song called Rule Britannia. We will never, never, never be slaves is is one of the lines in that. And so this sense of an erasure of history and uh, a negation of identity can really um, resonate with that. And then trying to figure out, do you assimilate or do you call it out? Or um, what's the cost and what are, what are the risks? Is something I'm trying to navigate all the time. I have a question, though, Azariah. Are, are you operating mainly in predominantly white church settings right now in England? And if so, do you feel like you have constant choices to make about how much of your heritage to bring into conversation, into the pulpit, into relationship with these folks who come from different backgrounds? So in the last year, for the first time, I am with a Sunday morning congregation that is majority African-Caribbean elders. And in fact, although the island of Nevis only has 10,000 people on it, there are three in the congregation. And so there's this wonderful sense of being known. And a gentleman who's in his 80s knew my mother and father. And and he knows things about them that I had never learnt. And so there's this wonderful sense of of, of, of being known. However, those, uh, my peers and my, uh, my leaders, as it were, are, you know, entirely all um, white. And so, um, so culturally, I'm always having to translate and uh, adjust and adapt myself in order to be understood. And even when I try my best, there are still cultural nuances and things that I miss. And so it's, um, I find that if the congregation on on one day is is entirely black there is a, a release and there's a, a freedom i find and i feel um which different to even if there's one white person in the congregation i begin to i begin to um to modulate and modify um who i am it's funny how those muscles are developed right throughout our childhoods and into our adolescence and then into adulthood and I don't know for both of you 
how your muscles developed. But in my case, the mantra was really implicitly make yourself useful. Make yourself a good cog in the machine, recognizing that you're not in charge of the machine, but you need to make yourself useful. And now that I find myself in more progressive Christian spaces, it's been somewhat devastating to realize that that mantra is still true, that I'm often not seen unless I'm useful to the white folks. I'm often not valued unless I'm prepared to bring them a blessing. And a small example, I'm a writer. I write a weekly newsletter. And I've noticed that when I write my weekly newsletter about my heritage, telling a story from my background, it gets far less engagement unless there's a recipe. If I offer a blessing, if I meet folks in their cultural contexts, if I offer a prayer for them and their particular needs, then suddenly people show up. Suddenly people are interested because I've centered them and their needs and their experiences rather than my own. And I'm really wrestling with this because I maybe had this fantasy that it would somehow be different in progressive spaces. That somehow these folks who are constantly talking about justice and equity would actually live that out in their reading habits and in their relationships. But maybe it turns out we've not got there yet. And that's a really hard truth to reckon with. So, Jeff, to take you back to the image of the, you're talking about the stained glass and the clear glass and the Reformed tradition in it. Be, think of the part of that, the simplicity and power of that tradition is the clear glass points us to God's creation. It seems to be another way you seem very much made for this tradition is um, your experience of, of being on the farm and watching nature. It seems to, at least in, in watching you in your in your writing, it seems to be one place where you are not necessarily responsible for producing a product for others um, and where you can be still. So t- tell us how you um, discovered that and something what that is, is for you in your life right now. I went back to graduate school to study theology. I went to seminary when I was 39. And one of the unexpected graces of going to Princeton Seminary was finding the farminary, which is a 21-acre sustainable farm that doubles as a classroom. And honestly, I had no aspirations other than not sitting in a lecture hall and listening to a professor drone on. And I saw in the course catalog a class that met on the farm, and they promised that we would get to do things outside. And I thought, oh, that would be a nice change of pace. And I fell in love with the farminary. I fell in love with digging in the soil and weeding and planting seeds and sitting on a stone bridge, looking out at a pond and being with this white heron that would be in the pond all the time. And I eventually got hired as a paid farmhand. And I had to laugh the first time my mother came to visit because I took her out to the farm and she watched me trying to harvest things and she critiqued the fact that I had left the long beans on the vine for too long and she pointed out how wrinkly they were and why hadn't I harvested them the week before. And then she asked me how much I was being paid. And I said, I make $9 an hour. 
And I had to laugh because I thought to myself, how confusing this would be for a hardworking immigrant who had paid her son's way through college only to end up seeing him as a farm worker making $9 an hour. How disorienting would that be? What has this come to? And I, I can't explain to my mom or to anyone else really how pointless the paycheck was and how much it has grown me as a human just to experience the miracle of compost and just to understand how I learned new things about my body being in the fields, taking care of chickens and goats. The satisfaction of serving my husband a meal that consisted of a chicken that I raised and slaughtered and potatoes and carrots and onions and garlic that I grew myself. Everything on the plate other than the oil and the salt and the butter. The main ingredients of that meal I almost burst into tears when I served that meal, that roast chicken. Because never in my life did I imagine that everything on the plate would be something that I had been a part of bringing to the table in that way. And when folks ask me about the greatest lesson of the farminary, I sometimes talk about how it made me feel appropriately small. And I know that might sound odd in the context of this conversation we've been having about erasure, right? And really invisibility and finding your place in a system. But I say appropriately small because it points me to the magnitude of what God has done in the world. The farm reminds me of how so much is beyond us and we're just invited to participate. Because even if I helped feed those chickens... I had such a minor role in fattening the bird. I didn't do anything to grow the grass that it was pecking at in the field. I didn't do anything to make sure that its heart kept beating and that it knew how to find water, even though I filled up the water tray. Appropriate smallness has really been a guiding principle for me in understanding my place in the world. It's interesting. Migration, whether it's immigration or, you know, but migration and movement really does overly emphasize autonomy and our capacity to do and make. Um, it's one of the great losses of migration, right? I, was, I just had some clergy or some people here from Kerala here at St. Luke's and I walked them over to our garden and it was hilarious. They went right down, took a, the end of a piece of okra and bent it and said, oh, you've left it too long. It's like, yes, we are home, right? And I wouldn't know that, right? These immigrant kids don't know these things because it would not have occurred to them that there was any way not to know them, but the things that you didn't get to carry because you migrated. And then how profound it is to be reconnected to a, that l- loss of agency or, the, or, or an appropriate kind of humility in creation that, that is a strange loss in migration. Willie James Jennings writes beautifully about how some of us, some of our peoples, have been torn from our lands and had that sacred connection broken. And then the colonizers who left their lands, they also have a loss to grieve, even though they don't acknowledge it, right? How many of my white American friends have no idea what soils they come from? And there's grief in that too, even if it's unexamined and unexpressed. 
And being on the farminary, somehow it was almost like a portal for me back to a connection with my ancestral lands because the director of the farm invited me to grow Chinese greens. He let me order seeds of the foods that I understood in my heart and in my soul as a kid. But at the same time, there was alienation because I remember the first year we offered some bok choy to the clients in our small CSA, our community-supported agriculture scheme. There were about 10 families. And after the pickup, I would find the bok choy left behind. And I gradually began to hear complaints about the bok choy because they didn't know how to cook it and they weren't interested in learning how. So even as I was rediscovering this connection, I was also being reminded of the alienation. Um, My African-American friend Pearl had put collard greens in the garden. She grew collard greens. And likewise, they didn't want the collard greens. These families saw it as other. That's for you, not for us. They wanted the tomatoes and the peppers. They wanted the lettuce. And Pearl and I felt at once such delight and such sadness that we were able to grow these things that connected us with our ancestral soils. And we were reminded how other folks really did not want to be reminded of the soils we came from. Jeff, thank you. It's been really wonderful hearing about uh, the farminary. I'm curious as to um, how you express hospitality to people who also feel a sense perhaps of erasure smallness being left out through the farm through faith through just the fullness of who you are what opportunities do you have at the moment to offer that to others and and to offer that sense of healing and home that uh, that perhaps you didn't have full access to when you were growing it seems like such a big question and i think when people ponder the magnitude of the pain and the grief in the world it can seem overwhelming right And my response to it is sometimes it's just through a postcard to a friend who comes to mind or a text message. Sometimes it is inviting someone to sit at your table or to send them a meal. Uh, Sometimes for folks I don't know, it comes through my writing. It comes through sharing a photograph on Instagram of something that doesn't contribute to to the discord. I think we're all invited to create these moments of respite in a world that doesn't like to rest, in a world that is constantly churning through controversy and pain. Uh, Other people can dwell on the hardship and the bigotry. And I do write about these things. But I also think those of us who feel a little bit of hope have a responsibility to share that. Our hope is not for ourselves. Evolving Faith, the community that I work with online and in our uh, occasional gatherings, is a place where we have discovered the hunger and the longing uh, for a sense of wholeness, a sense that many of us have longed for for a long time because we've felt alienated from God and from the church. And sometimes it's just sitting and listening. Sometimes it's saying to someone, you're not alone. It doesn't take that much, honestly. And Fozzie the dog. 
Yeah, Fozzie is another example of hospitality, I guess. At the beginning of the pandemic, we became like so many other people, those folks who would go online and look through pictures of rescue dogs. And then we welcomed this old deaf flea and tick covered creature into our home. And honestly, taking care of Fozzie has helped me to create home. It is awe-inspiring to me to realize how caring for another living thing can grow us and can invite us into a deeper understanding of what it means to create home. Yeah, so I, I was just struck by, I was remembering, um, I think Vandana Shiva, right, the Indian ecofeminist, writes about how our alienation from the earth is, she attributes all Western, all violence to it. And so she writes about, you know, the, the rage of gun violence in this country like 30 years ago, right, and attributes it to our alienation from, she says, from soils in general and um, from our native soils. Um, so she says that about white men and the alienation from the earth. Um, and I, um, which is the, the grace that you're talking about, right, of the, of the return. Jeff, thank you. Um, it is always a pleasure to be in conversation. Thank you for being in this conversation with us. Thank you so much for the invitation and for your hospitality. Um, it's been lovely to meet you and I hope that we can talk again. I hope we can continue the conversation around a table with many plates and dishes. That'd be wonderful. That'd be wonderful. was talking to Azariah Franz-Williams and Winnie Varghese. Randolph Matthews composed the music. Grace is produced by me, Rosie Dawson. It's a Hardedge production and you can find more by going to www.hardedge.com or wherever you get your podcasts from. Do write a review and share Grace with your friends. Oh, 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 oh,